Hi, everybody. I'm Patrick McEnroe, and this is Holding Court. Thanks to Raya Eyewear for sponsoring this episode of Holding Court. I've been wearing Raya since last year. During the pandemic, I started teaching more lessons than ever before, especially outside. Raya are by far the best sunglasses for tennis I've ever used. Check them out at RayaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. And use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. They are total game changers. All right, time for a very special Tennis Tuesday edition of Holding Court because there's a lot of news happening in the tennis world. And as often happens uh, throughout the years when there is a lot of news, I hear from a, quite a few people, journalists, uh, radio people, and so on. And one of them uh, works for the Washington Post. Her name is Liz Clark. And she often, and she's become a good friend over the years, and she often reaches out to me. Sometimes she makes a mistake of calling ESPN PR. I don't know why she does that. She knows she can just call me directly. And anytime she calls, I listen and we talk tennis because she's been covering tennis for how long now, Liz, for the Washington Post? Oh, wow. Boy, that's a good question. I think... 2004? What is that? Oh, my God. Is that 18 years? That's, well, almost. It's about, yeah, I guess it's close. 16, 17 years. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, proudly so. Yes, happily so. And and very happily, you were able to attend Wimbledon this year, although we were all in sort of our own little pseudo bubble. And so as often happens, when when a big story breaks in the tennis world and the Washington Post decides they need their best person on it, it is, of course... Uh, Liz Clark. So when the Federer news broke yesterday uh, through his own Instagram video post that he wasn't going to play the U.S. Open, that uh, he was going to have to have another surgery, of course, I hear from Liz. So tell me what you were going to ask me for. I mean, it's a little bit of role reversal here, Liz, but let's Mm. let the people know who listen to my podcast, a lot of tennis fans, a lot of Federer fans around the world as well. How would you start off the interview with me? If you, we were just doing, you know, Patrick, I, went, I need to talk to you for an article I'm doing. Well, how would that start? Yes. So just as like a, a small thing to say in advance, a lot of times I'll ask you things that I, I may even know the answer to or have strong feelings about. But for the purposes of writing my story, you, your voice has an authority. Mine doesn't. And you have the experience as a player, um, as a coach, as an analyst. So... So your voice is, is more meaningful than mine, but I don't want people to think I'm just a dim bulb and come to you with like <laughs> a blank slate. But, um, but I, I'm so, I often learn, I learn from you so much. So, I mean, I would have Well, let me, well, with, well, well, well hold on. Before yeah. you start, I have to jump in here because um, you're selling yourself way, way too short because... You're, you're, I appreciate you saying that about me, then my opinion matters. And, you know, that's what a great journalist does is they have their own maybe viewpoint, but they talk to people that are experts. But I consider yeah. you not only an expert in tennis, but why I want to do the role reversal a little bit today during this podcast is because I often feel like sometimes I'm, I'm in tennis too deep. You know what I mean? So I like to speak mm. to people mm. that do other things like you. You know, you've covered football for years. You've covered a multitude of other sports. But to get your perspective, because sometimes I feel like I'm almost too close to tennis sometimes. Yes. 
Yes. Well, that's sweet of you to say, but I totally get it. I mean, we, we all benefit from another's perspective. And, and if you think your perspective is the only one, that's not a good leader. That's not a good journalist not a good parent, whatever. The list is long. But anyway, I would have started by saying, you know, I am sure you um, read what Federer shared yesterday. You may have watched the Instagram uh, video, you know, in which he spoke directly to fans. Um, you know, the first thing I'd want to know is from your experience, what does it mean? What is the road back for a world-class athlete going through a third arthroscopic surgery? on a knee in, in 18 months. And part B is, and what's the road back for a 40 year old mm. elite athlete who, who happens to be Federer? I think the second question is more, more relevant and uh, sure. more difficult to answer. And I think that's yeah. partly why it's difficult for the Federer fans and, and just fans of tennis. I mean, I consider myself a Federer fan. I also consider myself a Nadal fan. I even mm. consider myself a Djokovic fan, which, of course, anytime I make any comment that maybe criticizes either either any of them just a little bit, oh, the whole <laughs> Twitterverse explodes. But that's another story. But I'll tell you what I first felt was I felt yeah. bummed out. I felt bummed yeah. out because Roger Federer obviously means so much to so many people. Uh, but he also means so much to the sport of tennis for what he's done. And I think, um, you know, from speaking to a, a few of my sources, not obviously Roger directly because he keeps him, you know, he keeps a pretty tight lid on, on what's going on. But just from the sources that I've spoken to, I think he knew the writing was on the wall right after Wimbledon as far as having yeah. surgery. Uh, obviously, he's talked to a lot of doctors uh, and the reality is sort of setting in for him, okay, that he had to get this done for a third time because clearly in that third set, especially against Hercotch at Wimbledon, mm. he wasn't, uh, you know, he wasn't Roger Federer. So amazingly, by the way, he was even able to get that far because when you talk about the fact that he's had to have a third surgery, um, clearly this was something that was, was hobbling him even during the, turn of the matches that he won. Uh, what he's, yeah. what's been so amazing about him over the years is, is first of all, he's never retired from a match, ever. He's never retired. From, let me repeat that again. He's never Unreal. retired from a match. And, uh, you know, I'm a little bit old school when it comes to that. When I see players, uh, you know, they retire when they're down a set and for love. And I'm like, you know, can't you, unless you're really, really injured, could you please mm -hmm. finish the match? So yeah. I, I was bummed because... Uh, I think that uh, the reality is setting in for him that he may not be able to come back. And I think that we don't know the answer to your second question, which he's 40. You know, I think when he came back a few years ago, you know, and all of a sudden he has an unbelievable run in Australia, wins a bunch of long matches, wins a title, wins another uh, a couple of majors, including Wimbledon again, then has the epic match with, with Djokovic, which he loses you're thinking what you know and i think he thought because why not that when he came back this time that it would sort of be similar and uh, obviously sure. he pulled out of the french open which i criticized him for which i still sure. don't think he should have done I, I don't think he should have played um if he didn't think he could finish the tournament but there you have then at wimbledon he has to you know go out there at, at whatever percentage he was uh and so i think the tennis world 
also has to start to deal with the reality, Liz, that there's mm. going to be life after Roger. There's going to be life after Rafa and even after Serena, for example, and Djokovic. And uh, so you kind of wonder where this is headed. I mean, the tennis will survive and we'll move on, but it won't be the same, certainly without Federer. It won't be the same without Rafa. I want to talk to mm-hmm. ask you about him because I know you spoke to him in D.C., and I also want it won't be the same without Djokovic because either in my opinion, the three greatest players of all time are certainly in the top five all time. Yes. Well, oh, my God. I've, now I just have a million things to ask you. So the interview is getting really long before we even start. Do you have time for two more Fed-related questions? Liz, this is my podcast, okay? Oh, we, it is we, your podcast. Yeah, we do whatever we want. This is the beauty <laughs> of the podcast. All we, right, and you have that yeah. edit function, too. So, uh, there's nothing to know, edit. We just uh, I, we don't have to edit. We just keep going. Let me, let me hear okay. your next question. Okay. Um, you know, as I, as I listened to Federer's message to his fans, his, his announcement, and, and obviously did it so a couple times, the phrase that, that was most jarring for me, was most arresting, is when he said, he basically explained why he reached the decision that surgery was his only option, because it would, quote, give him a glimmer of hope mm. to return to the tour in some, in some shape. You know, it wasn't a glimmer of hope of winning slams. Right. It's a glimmer of hope to return to the tour in some shape. And glimmer of hope, it was just a more slender thread than I was prepared for. And and I, too, sent, I mean, he had made a previous reference that he had suffered a setback in the grass court season. And, you know, he didn't win Holloway as, as sort of his birthright in the run-up. You, you, you knew all these things. But I found that kind of jarring and I'm wondering on an emotional level like visceral level did did that phrase strike you yes it did and uh Mm -hmm. I think that's you know I saw the reactions from a lot of people which uh you know contrasting with his video that he posted which he doesn't do that often by the way when he goes to Instagram Mm -hmm. to post a video and he did one you know the day before Wimbledon started I don't know if you remember he was walking around the grounds and he had he was so happy to be back and happy to be (laughs) part of the tour and obviously part of Wimbledon, which he's won eight times. And I think in this one, you know, there was a little, dare I say, maybe a little sadness in his eyes. And I Mm -hmm. think again, I think again, he's having to navigate his own emotions, navigate the fact that it's going to end and it may be, it may be ending now. And I think uh, uh, that is the reality of the situation. So of course, he can get the surgery. He can. It sounds like he's going to try to come back. You know he wants to come back. And again, he doesn't strike me as a kind of person, Liz, that, you know, Pete Sampras was, was great in his own right. Pete Sampras, when he won that U.S. Open, he's like, I'm out of here. I'm done. Because he wanted to go out on top, right? Because Pete yeah. Sampras was the ultimate competitor. Um, Roger Federer is a great competitor. We know that. But he loves to play the game. He wants to be like he, I don't feel like he thinks like if I come back, I have to win another major. Serena's yeah. driven that way. Serena's like I'm playing because I want to tie. I want to break the record. Okay, and 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 yeah. and, 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 and Federer is just a, he's a little bit different. You know, he, of course he wants to go out there and, and think he can win, but I don't believe he wants to come back just to say, I want to win one more. You know, I want to get to 20. I think he wants to come back because he loves to play the game. He loves the life. He embraces all that's part of being Roger Federer. 
but he also is coming to the realization that his body may say enough is enough. And, and how does he deal with that? And he doesn't want it to be because of an injury. You know, I think he'd want it to be, well, I feel pretty good. You know, I'm moving, I can move pretty well, but you know, I just got my ass kicked in the third round of Wimbledon. I'm making this up for next year. And I think he would prefer that. I think he would prefer to have some, one of these young guys just, you know, beat the pants off of him. And he beat, remember when he beat Sampras at Wimbledon? Yeah, he, he didn't it's beat the a, pa- a very fitting coda. Yes, yeah, that would be. And, and so yes. I think that's what he's dealing with now emotionally. And I think he thinks, well, if I get the surgery, at least I can come back in a way that's on my terms. Yes, and as has happened in our previous conversations many a time, you anticipate my next question before I get to ask it, which was, and, and you may have nothing further to add, but, but I was going to ask you, you know, for a former world number one who's accustomed to playing a certain way with a certain authority, a certain elegance and command, you know, what, what are the sort of psychological or personal decisions that you sort through to kind of reach your comfort level, like how comfortable will I be competing at number nine in the world, at number 15 in the world? You know, Mm -hmm. how much of my skills and grace and ability can I suffer, you know, eroding, whether this is a matter of pride or just legacy, or I want to finish my, I want the last chapter to look like X. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and obviously that's different. You, you, Sampras is the perfect example of someone who's like, not, nah, I'm going out on top. And then others that are process driven, love the sport. It's like, I want to be the best I can be it, it, whatever setting I can be, even as I'm being selected. But this is quite an opus of a question, but, but I am sure not, not to act like I know Roger, but from what I, all I know, I can't imagine he would want his last set as a professional to be a 6 not not a semblance of himself, a 6 leaving his favorite right. you know, setting in all of tennis. I would agree with that. I agree totally with that assessment. He doesn't strike me as the type of person that in any way has to feel I need to go out with a win. I don't believe that mm. at all. I don't believe it'll happen either. I mean, it would be a miracle if it did, and it would be, you know, like sort of a dream situation for for Roger and for Federer. But again, he loves the game. He loves to play the game. Uh, I believe that he will want to be at a certain level, Liz. So the level to me is, can I be competitive uh, in the majors, whether he's ranked 9, 15, or 50, you know, if he can go out and play a Sitsipas and, you know, play a four or five setter and lose and be, you know, highly competitive, mm-hmm. then I think he would be okay with that in, in, in coming mm-hmm. back, let's say, next year in 2022. If he goes out there and he loses, you know, two, two, and two to somebody who's ranked, you know, 48 in the world, I don't think he's, yeah. he, would, he would settle for that. And I don't think he will come back because, you know, the thing about Roger is he's always gone through pretty meticulously his rehabs, uh, his, 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 his sort of his, his preparation on the court. So, I mean, I think he'll have a pretty good feel, 
you know, once he gets through this surgery, whenever it happens and does its rehab, so let's say it's the end of the year or maybe early mm -hmm. next year that he can start, you know, really training and hitting balls. I mean, I would think he would bring in a couple of, of, of practice players to sort of assess where he's at. I don't think he's going to go blind mm -hmm. and just show up somewhere without at least thinking. You know, even when he went to the first tournament he played this year, I believe it was in Doha or Dubai, wherever it was yeah. after the Australian Open. I mean, you know, he lost early, but it, he was still competitive. It wasn't like he lost like two and two or one and one. Mm -hmm. And then he went, mm -hmm. you know, had to have another surgery. So I think that he, he understands where he's at. He'll understand where he's at. And I don't think he'll go out there. Now, I think he wants to come back because I think to your point, he doesn't want that final 6-0 set to be his last, you know, ever appearance mm -hmm. in a Grand Slam, particularly at Wimbledon, which is obviously the one I think that means the most to him. So I think it's going to be a process of the next three to six months when he has the surgery and sort of starts to recover. Um, and also, a, a, as we've talked about, sort of the mental side of it for him as to, okay, am I willing to do this? You know, you know, mm -hmm. you know I'm willing, am I capable? My kids are a little bit older. Uh, you know, maybe I want to stay in one place. I mean, he's always liked the life. He's always liked to travel. His wife's liked it. They, you know, they make it work. Um, mm -hmm. But you would wonder at some point if it's like, mm, maybe it's not worth it anymore to keep doing that. This episode is being brought to you by Raya Eyewear. Over the last few years, a growing concern of mine has been the long-term effects of overexposure to UV rays from my extended time on court in the sun, you know, following that little yellow ball all over the globe. Well, I was also just tired of squinting on sunny days, but my fear was always that wearing sunglasses to protect my eyes would affect the way I hit the ball. Well, last year, especially during the pandemic last summer, I came across Raya, and I'm so, so glad that I did. Raya is changing the way tennis players see the game and protect their most important performance asset, their vision. All of their eyewear is handcrafted in Italy and built specifically to enhance ball contrast and provide protection from those harmful UV rays. There's no question that they help me see the ball better, they relax my eyes in the sun, and they've become an essential part of my tennis experience. Check them out at RiaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. Use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. I promise you will love these sunglasses. This episode of Holding Court is being brought to you by True. That's T-R-U, the lifestyle beverage. Absolutely amazing. Go to drinktrue.com to learn more. I suggest you try out the True Sampler, 30% off with the code PATRICK. Well, let me ask you, Liz, since you paused, because I think I answered those questions. I want to ask you, because I was lucky enough to go down to D.C., your hometown, for the tournament just for the weekend to do some hosting duties and MC duties for the tournament, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Got to see the last uh, couple of days of the tournament. I, unfortunately, I didn't see you, even though, of course, you were there. But you were the only one to get the sit-down interview with Mr. Rafael Nadal, who lit a fire to the entire event that was still obvious on the weekend, even when he wasn't there. So give me your thoughts and perspective about where he was and and, and look there's question marks now about him if he's sure. going to play the u.s open so what's your assessment sure well i'll back it up a little bit so he he played his first match on a wednesday right that that was his choice he had a buy um he got into town i believe it was thursday night so mm -hmm. his first practice to to no fans 
he practiced at the venue Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Right. And our sit-down was Sunday. He also gave a group Zoom that same day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had gone out there Friday and Saturday just with my press pass to sit up in the stands and watch him hit, watch him practice. Because, I mean, I love watching practice anyway. I've seen him practice, you know, at the French Open, at other slams. So I know how structured and organized, how methodical, how efficient his practices are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm just intrigued with process in general. And the last, um, you know, I had seen him obviously was on TV at the, the French, the semifinal loss, which in that last set, that was tough to take because he, well, the, I thought he had an abdominal injury, but I digress. I, I just thought something was not right in that fourth set that was that was more specific than just overall fatigue. Okay. Um, nonetheless, um, so what I saw those first couple of days of practice is that his accuracy wasn't there. Like in previous practices, it would be like 20 forehand cross courts to this exact spot without putting a cone on it. And mm. it would be like target practice. They hardly ever vary. Then, right. you know, 20 down the line, never, never vary. So it, he did that same ritual, but the shots were out. They were wide. They were this. So I went, I thought, okay, well, that's part of why he's here. He's getting that accuracy back. And I didn't pick up on a foot injury, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. I, I thought, well, he's picking up two months off um, with that accuracy, with right. that deep, deep brown stroke. And so we sat, when we sat down, I had not, you know, and to be clear, I had extra COVID tests to, to be sure, uh, you know, there was right. no issue and we kept a safe distance. But still, you know, I was able to see his face and, and, and vice versa and, and, uh, so first blush, he looked totally rested. He looked happy. He looked ready to go. And then as we started talking, he he said, you know, I I had a foot injury. The foot injury is why I couldn't play Wimbledon. Why I didn't play Wimbledon. Couldn't play Wimbledon. Which he, and, ne- which he never said, by the way. He never no, said that. Yeah. No. And I was like, oh, you did. And um, I said, I just for some reason, I thought to ask, well, how many days did you go without picking up your tennis racket? Mm -hmm. Thinking he would say like three, you know, because we we know how he works. He's like, it was 20 days. Wow. And I almost fell out of my chair. It's like 20 days. He said, yes, I could not pick up the racket. Um, And then he proceeded to say it was his left foot. Mm -hmm. At some point I asked, you know, did you have surgery? He said, no, I did not have surgery, but it was very painful. Um, So he never specified, you know, was this a stress fracture, a tendon? And obviously, I'm not a podiatrist. So I think all we know is it's a left foot injury that he he could not pick up a a racket. So he, um, it was a gradual return. So there was this duality of an athlete who looked refreshed, healthy, happy. He had done some sightseeing. He was so gracious about being in D.C., happy to be in this tournament. But utterly frank about starting over and not knowing. And in no way was he sort of using the DC tournament to test himself and then bail. It was, this is my next step. You know, he was there to win the tournament if his body permitted, if his game permitted. Um, so it, it wasn't like, let me just test the waters and then 
skip along to, to the next tournament, which I believe is Toronto. Right. Um, so I'm so sorry. I'm asking, I'm answering a million things that you didn't ask. Um, no, no, this is fascinating. Keep going. I mean, I'm learning. Yeah. yeah, So, well, uh, so then we see him play against query who Uh, on uh, the Wednesday night. Jack Sock. Oh, Jack Sock. Oh, good Lord. First thing you said wrong all day. Okay. Well, yeah. (laughs) And excuse my, my, um, you know, fusing American. And by the way, I just got, this is funny because I just literally got off the phone with Sam Query, okay? Because he agreed to come to our Pro-Am this weekend here in the Hamptons where we have one of our clubs where we raise money for our um, our kids that are on scholarship at, our, at the John McEnroe Tennis Academy. And nice. so we do it every year. We normally do it with sort of legend players because that's usually who, who we can get right before the U.S. Open. But there's quite sure. a few players that are coming to the Hamptons, Long Island area, to, uh, to train and so on. So he agreed. So anyway, Sam Quir will be here, which I'm very grateful to him for coming um, yes. to our event where we do a little pro-am, a little hit and giggle, and uh, people pay money to play in it, to play with legends and so on. Um, so I'm very excited because we're going to have some other current players. I can't reveal who they are yet because mm-hmm. a lot of them are in Cincinnati, but they've agreed oh, yeah. that if they're out of Cincinnati, they will come to our event. So please talk about was Nadal against Sock, and Sock actually looked pretty darn good in that match. He did, and my apologies to Sam Query uh, for, for that uh, blip and also um, – implying that he lost in a doll. But um, so excuse me. But but I was totally engaged in that match. I just in, in my memory I'm I'm like so fixated on the doll. So it wasn't in, so as you know, it was like a three hour match. Right. It, it was not a an easy, routine, uh efficient process at all for him to play his first match in two months. No doll. Um it wasn't until the third set that I became conscious of his movement you know, it is not being, being what it normally is. Um, but I was looking at it, you know, and he, he doesn't, he's pretty good at playing hurt in, in not giving anything away. Right. And um, if he loses in a match, in my experience, if Nadal loses a match and has an injury, he will never admit it um, until some time has passed because he does not want to detract from the other person's Achievement is is the way I look at it, and different athletes, different strokes. But that's one facet of Nadal that I feel like I've observed long enough to say, to say as a point of fact. So, um, so he 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 um, he was pretty frank after after that sock match, acknowledging it was hard, it was long, and the foot caused him pain. So the next. It, 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 this 500-level tournament, he has to play every day. If you start Wednesday, you play every day. Right. So he's obviously on the schedule. The next day, I found out he was going to practice, do a light hit um, at 3 in the afternoon before his 7 p.m. next match. And unlike his previous practices, which had been advertised to fans to come watch and were sort of, you know, people were understandably going nuts, they didn't allow fans in this practice Um I mean, you could peek through a fence if you really wanted to see. Um, but I slipped in as a reporter along with Howard Fendrich of the AP. So we just sat there and watched the full 45-minute practice. And, I mean, he, he knew we were there. It, not that that's his concern. He's using his 45 minutes well. But it struck me that he was hitting much better, hitting much more accurately. But it was as if he were playing tennis 
to the absolute best of his ability with his torso. And I don't know if you've ever <laughs> done that. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not here to run around and sprint right, corner right, to corner. Right, right, right. I'm not here to make explosive movements mm-hmm. whatsoever. I am going to see how accurately, how hard, how flat, how, how much spin, how, how clever my slice. Every variation you could do, right. you know, from the waist up, he was doing, and oh, if, he was oh, doing oh, it yeah. well. Oh, if I could have some of the torque of Rafael Nadal in any yeah. of my shots, just yeah. one, you know. But, but, yeah, but no. yeah, he was just going through like a shoot-around, practicing yes. his shots, but not moving, basically. Not, not, moving. not what I would consider moving, right. you know. I mean, obviously, he's, he has active feet, you know, hop, 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 but not, uh, not the sprinting. So I didn't know if it's because it hurt or he's saving himself, or he didn't want to telegraph anything to two reporters, or that's what he was going to do come hell or high water. But, so I, I made a tweet, but I purposely didn't make an inference from it, because I just don't know. You know, right. I don't know what this means. Um, so that night was the match against Lloyd Parrott, who I was not familiar with his game, so shame on me. But, um, but it, was, it was evident pretty quickly to me that the foot was a real issue. Um, in that... And, and it became, to me, evident as it went on because Harris would wrong foot Nadal a couple times. And there were some points that he didn't, he conceded basically. You know, he didn't immediately cut and reverse and backpedal mm-hmm. um, like he would. And I believe Harris finished with 16 aces. And obviously, the, the, the serve is the strength of his game. But I did not, I don't, feel like Rafa at his peak would have been aced 16 times. I, you know, it's like that, whatever is that explosive first step. Right. And he was, ga- he, yeah, he, was, he was guessing a little bit more because he knew he couldn't yeah. explode one way or the other exactly. on, at, the, at the drop of the dime, what you, have, what you have to do on the return. So he was basically, Ex- if he leaned the wrong way, he let, he let it go. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so these are kind of subtleties. Well, for you, it's probably a neon sign, but it took me a while to kind of realize what is missing here is that explosive first step mm. and that commitment to every single point. You know, I mean, he did run down some droppers. I was like, oh, my God, that's going to be the end. You know, and he certainly fought. But there was a selectiveness in the third set where it was like a calculus, lightning fast calculus. Uh, what's the risk reward of completely exploding off the block? And, um, and after that loss, he, he actually said he, his foot was feeling better. And he, he complimented Harris for being brave and playing well and being the better man. But I felt that was Nadal being magnanimous. Mm-hmm. I, I did not quite believe he felt better. Um, I mean, I, I, that was an open question for me. The fact that he was more upbeat about his, his physicality, I took that as being a, a, a diplomat and a very good good sport and a sportsman, the person I have covered all these years. So I, I knew he was going to Toronto, and so I wasn't surprised when he made the announcement that he, he, needed, he needed to step away here for a now, while. Now, have you heard, Liz, if, uh, since you're so dialed into this Rafael Nadal story, because he also pulled out of Cincinnati, which is just getting underway. Um, yes. that he, has he gone back to Spain, do you know, or has he stayed in the U.S.? Yeah, so I don't know, and I certainly don't want to act like Miss Bossy Pants. I know there's a tons of, of certainly Spanish press, other reporters who are way more dialed in to, not, to Nadal's, you know, 
routines than I. I do my very best. You know, for a U.S.-based reporter, I do my very best. But um, I feel like I heard him say he was going to go back home. I mean, mm. but this was, and maybe I and was not listening carefully. No, I'm, but I'm, this I'm, yeah, been, I'm guessing that he did because it, he, he pulled yeah. out, you know, before that uh, he would have played his opening round. And, you know, when I got right. to D.C., by the way, you, as you said, he lost to Harris Thursday night. I got there late Friday night because I was coming into work, you know, the weekend matches. And when I arrived Saturday morning pretty early for uh, sort of the production meeting about the day's events yeah. and so on, he was practicing. Like he was actually just done with his practice. So he started an early practice on Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And then I know mm-hmm. he went and, and played golf that afternoon. So something, you know, just by the fact that he was practicing, you get the sense that he also he thought that this was going to get better, you know, and he wouldn't have gone to Canada if, if it, right. you know, on Friday, for example, in D.C., he went to a doctor, he went and got an MRI, and they said, Rafa, you've got such and such wrong with your foot, you know, you're done uh, for a uh, month. Uh. So clearly, whatever it yeah. is that's bothering him um, is not something I would think that at this point requires surgery or anything no. of that nature. But like you said, he's been, we, he said it was a foot injury. I don't know if it was a heel. We don't know if it was a toe. We don't know if it was a, you know, he probably if it was the ankle, he would have said so. You know, there could be shin splints. There could be uh, bottom of the, the balls of the feet. Who the heck knows? Mm-hmm. So Fair we'll enough. see. Yeah. But I want to ask you uh, just a more general question because as someone who, who covers tennis, you know, not all year as the Washington Post you know, we wish they covered tennis all year like they do football and basketball, but that they don't. So that's a reality. We've discussed that before. But let me ask you, because I, I, you know, I've thought about this, and I always say, well, tennis will survive, and it will. But what's the post-Nadal-Federer? And, and I, I, I'm not going to say Djokovic because I think he's healthier and he's going to play longer. And, and let's be honest, he's not, as, he's not as popular. He's not as big of a – he may end up being the greatest ever. In fact, he probably will. But when you talk about driving the celebrity nature of the sport, the ticket sales, yeah. the sponsorship, the TV ratings, let's face it, it's Federer and it's Nadal. That's just the bottom line. So when they leave, when they're done – I'm not saying Rafa's done. I know he's going to keep trying to play another right. few years – and hopefully right. so will Roger. What does that world look like to a Washington Post journalist? Boy, I mean, I will always make as strong of a case as I can that we need to cover tennis, you know, whether it's me or someone else, because I think D.C. is a great tennis market. We have, you know, readers who love it. And we're, we're you know, our, we have a presence as a global, you know, w- website as well. We're not just a D.C. paper. We, you know, we, we are investing Totally. And so we think of ourselves as, as globally as well. So I will always advocate for that. And I think I'll always be heard. And, um, you know, y- you as a ESPN person have, I, I'm sure you have a, an interesting view on that. I'm not dodging the question. I'll circle back to what I think. But, um, you know, you, you know what ratings look like. And, and as, a, as a newspaper person, I mean, we, we have some sense of hits, but um, it's, a, it's a different, I think, sense up well diff- different levers kind of drive the uh, you know what you cover so I, I am a big advocate of our covering tennis you know I think on the one hand we are so blessed and lucky to have lived through this era of seeing the three of them 
come into form and dominate the game. And I think anybody who loves tennis, whether competitor, promoter, broadcaster, reporter, person on their sofa, would pinch themselves with this truth. You know, how lucky were we to see this? Um, I also understand every sport renews itself and new champions come, new, new athletes with personal tales that captivate come and, and, and there may be a fallow period, but, but it will reemerge. I mean, I, with full heart, I, I think there are several players in that, you know, number three to 30 that, that are stars in the making, you know, right. that, that could, you know, are deserving of coverage. I mean, everybody's deserving of coverage if you're, you're reaching a certain point in, in a major, but who could captivate, captivate the public fans. in a way that yeah. is not just, a, yeah. not just a t- the diehard said, tennis fans. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that said, there's also some alchemy. There's some sort of magic, no matter what sport in mm-hmm. NFL tennis that happens when you have a great rivalry, right. you know, something, it's not like, See, there are eight good people or eight good teams. No, it's this dynasty versus that one. And, and, you know, so that's a special kind of thing that isn't just necessarily going to happen again. Um, You know, and I think we've seen it in in women's tennis. There's some really terrific players of different styles and different abilities, and I love that. But, you know, almost every slam has a different champion. There's no, there, yeah, there's, say, no, there's no other Serena, you know, there's Serena right, and then right. there's a bunch of really, you know, really good players, but no one that sort of yes. jumped to that, you know, type of level, not even close. Yes. And so you, you, you could say like, yay, women's tennis, because this shows how deep it is, the depth of talent. But you could also say, damn, you know, it's, it's not like I have to tune in for the next installment of Venus versus Serena. Or, you know, Venus versus Sharapova, which, of course, I mean, uh, Serena versus Sharapova, right. which famously lopsided. <laughs> but that <laughs> said, you know, it was like a pairing, a, a face-off that captivated people. And I think women's tennis, I, I wish it had that right now, right. you know. But, but I, under, I see the good in, in the many women who are strong. But um, so, I, you know, it, I think it's going to be tough because there's not going to be champions of such, I don't think, with exceptional sportsmanship and and obvious differences in style mm. uh, in approach is Nadal and Federer. And if if you can say you have a favorite player A, one A and one B, I mean, there it to me, even though their games are so different and their approach to the game is so different and their strengths are so different, but there's something transcendent about that, you know, it's like, two sides of the, of a coin. I, I love, I'm intrigued by everything about their careers and, and their love of the sport and their respect for the sport. That, that doesn't grow on trees. You know, that's, mm. that's, that's exceptional. You know, that's, those are exceptional qualities. So I, I will have a bit of mourning, even as I love to watch Fifi Pass play and can't wait to see, you know, uh, Felix Ojeali-Assim flourish and, um, I, you know, I, I, the list is long, but well, I think you're right. I think you hit on something. I think as I think about it, I think, you know, just as a fan of tennis, cause I'm a fan of both guys. I think, um, there's going to be a lot of emotions, you know, when, oh. when those guys leave, I mean, because of what you so eloquently said, and by the way, Liz, I mean, we've gone on 
Uh, I mean, this is like when you interview me. It's like, we, you, you, uh, Patrick, I just need to talk to you for a couple of minutes. And the next thing I know, we've been on for 45 minutes. And this is, this, no, this is what's amazing. And, and you've given us such great insight. And I have to say, you know, we might have to do this again. Well, if you, you do your little metrics, if I'm not driving away your podcast listeners, Listen, like, you know I mean, I'll do I, it again. The, the holding court, the, the surefire tennis listeners are going to absolutely eat this up. So, but before I let you go, um, did I answer all of your questions? Because uh, I'm here for you right now. Now it's, this is it. Yeah. I mean, we're going to talk yeah. again probably before the U.S. Open. I know we always do that. But as far as yeah. what you, you, you called me, uh, you reached yes. out to me today. Did I answer all your questions? You did as it relates to Federer, and that is a plenty big topic for today and this moment. And I will bug you on other things at another date. And I will bring home the interview in less than 45 minutes, I promise. I'm so bad about I will. I will I'm, I'm bringing home this interview in just under 40 minutes, and it's going to be <laughs> one heck of a podcast. Liz Clark, everyone, from the Washington Post telling us, uh, I, you're giving us some great insight overall, but also on uh, Rafael Nadal's story here. And uh, we hope that he can manage to show up in New York at the U.S. Open. I will see you there, Liz. And uh, you yeah. know to just call or text me anytime. Don't go through any of these official ESPN <laughs> avenues. You, you just come right to me, just like I'm going to come right to you for my next podcast, okay? All righty. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank As you, always. Liz. Liz Clark okay, from bye-bye. the Washington Post, everyone here on Holding Court. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.